But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> All right, where are we here? Let's see if this is too loud. And uh, Jeb, if I could get you to say a few words in your sort of normal. A few words in my sort of normal. Yeah, okay, that sounds good. David, say a few words into the microphone, please. Three, two, one, one, two, three. That looks good. Okay. Hi, how's everybody doing? Uh, apologies for all the craziness here. It's just been one of those kinds of days, and uh, we appreciate your being so patient and coming on by. And then um, what we're going to do here is is a, sort of a regular episode with some non-Sebring subjects and then sort of a few Sebring stuff. And we're just going to, you know, um, this is very, very different for us, as you may know. We uh, don't, maybe four times a year do we do an episode like this in person, you know, and so... And we've done two of them so far this we week. This one, is the second one this we week. We did another one earlier this week, right? So uh, it's, uh, you know, we've passed our quota or, you know, we're reaching the end of our tolerance for each other or whatever. So uh, um, we're, we're approaching the end of our allotted time. Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> anyways, um, here's my first question for you two guys. How, what's, what's kind of special things do you need to take into consideration when you run your GA aircraft in blizzard country? This is what I want to know, blizzard country. Because there's blizzard going on. Well, bl blizzard, if there's a... Keep talking. Uh, if, if you are operating your airplane in cold weather, preheat is pro perhaps the primary right. concern but, but I would have that's sort of a cold weather thing. It. I mean, I'm but talking if you're, about... if you're operating in a blizzard, yeah. uh, you need to consider a variety of other things, not least of which is your own sanity. Yep. Um, beyond well, that, here's more of the nature of my question. I, I, it's kind of a serious question. Um, I, I know you've often, maybe always, hangered your airplane. Nearly always. All right. Um, and did you hanger the Comanche? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering about people who don't have the luxury of hangering their airplanes, and 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 then it snows. How does that work? Well, it depends on if you want to use the airplane immediately. Okay. If you want to use the airplane that's been parked outside after a snowstorm. Um, then you have some work to do, mm -hmm. not least of which is shoveling out a taxiway where you can get to the plowed part of the ramp or, yep. or plowed taxiway. Um, you also have snow and ice on the airplane, all of which has to come off. Yes, I understand now, uh, that all part. All of it. Okay. Yeah, no frost, yeah, no, 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 no drips, no runs, nothing No runs, no drips, no air. Yeah. Yeah. Understood, understood. Uh, is a typical general aviation airplane's skin going to be able to handle the weight of snow even for a brief period of time? Is there an issue with, you know, you had hail damage in, on the debonair at one point. Um, is there, you know, and if it snows a foot and a half overnight and you go to the airport to clear your airplane, is that foot and a half of snow on the wings a thing or do you just brush it off? I'm going to give you my standard answer. Depends. It depends. It depends. Okay. Once. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but it doesn't snow down here very often. Thankfully. Yeah. So I've uh, had snow on. I didn't always hanger my dad. Uh -huh. I couldn't get in a hanger for a couple of years. So it sat out on a ramp, and that's how it got the hail. But it also got some snow and ice on it on occasion, um, and whether by serendipity or planning or just pure laziness, uh, it didn't get flown for a few days after a snowstorm until all the ice and snow had melted off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and something to remember if you're dealing with that kind of temperatures. The airplane was sitting outside and it was raining before it turned to snow. You could well have 
ice accumulated inside the control surfaces mm -hmm. and brushing off the wings and using de-icing fluid isn't necessarily going to take care of that so the hot setup no pun intended is pull it in a hanger where it's warm enough for that to, to melt and let it really and melt make out, sure yeah. you drained it out but then if you can pull the airplane out into sub-freezing get going and go in the snow it's funny the snow doesn't stick it just blows right by. So once it's cleaned, flying through the snow is not like flying in icing weather. Because mm -hmm. you're not going to run into that big of a problem as long as the snow is nice and dry and the airframe doesn't get a chance to warm up to where the snow can freeze on it. can also mean not running the defroster on the windshield because that will warm it up enough for moisture to collect okay. and it's to start to freeze. Yeah. So. So, but ice inside control structures is uh, occasionally a problem for some yeah. guys. Well, we're thinking about all the people who up in uh, in the central easter coast. You states. mean you're not thinking about these folks down here in Sebring? Well, so here's 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 the segue. You ready? Here's the segue. Um, we sort of had a Florida blizzard over the last couple of days. We had extreme weather, relatively extreme weather. All right. I mean, we're here at the Sebring uh, U.S. Sport Sport Aviation Expo, and uh, and they actually canceled um, a part of yesterday, day three, um, because of, of extreme conditions. And uh, and then we were going to, Jeb, you were going to fly us over here this morning in the debonair, but, uh, you know, better part of Valor and all, you decided that we weren't going to fly over this morning. Um, Amy Lobota, who was going to be with us here today, was sends her apologies, but she wasn't going to fly, um, certainly not the Kit Fox, and she didn't even want to fly the RV up here today because it's just a handful, apparently. I mean, it's, it, the wind is blowing today for, for It wouldn't be a whole lot here. of fun. Um, I, I can't speak for Amy. I wouldn't pretend to. Uh, but my deal was less about uh, getting in and out of Sebring than it was getting into the home strip afterward. Oh, getting back home. Right. Yeah. What, what is there about flying back to Hidden River that concerned you? 30 knot cross. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, okay. and if anybody has any doubts about the velocities we've been seeing out there, as we were pulling into the parking lot, we were watching a cub of some lineage or another, maybe a new one, maybe an old one, but it was slowing down to the point where it was this far away from hovering on, on the base leg. We were thinking, actually. I'm wondering yeah. how much power he's got in that, or whether he's just slowing it down to that much because it makes for a better, easier Photoshop. We were cheering for him to get it going backwards. He almost he had it almost going backwards. Had it going he backwards. almost had it going backwards. I mean, he was hovering. It was it was motionless. Well, we, basically, we've done that in slightly slower airplanes where we could hover and then back up and then hover and. But eventually, you get too cold and want to sit yeah. there. And, so. and Jeb, did you really see one going sideways? What did you see? There was similar aircraft as the one we, the, you know, the, the Yellow Cub, similar one to that, and it was just kind of transitioning. To the left. It, it was kind yeah. of re remaining where it was, but it was just slowly drifting yeah. off to the yeah. left. It, looks, it looked purposeful. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. But you could also tell that it was a little bit windy on the field by how many of the light sports that are tied down would actually hover in place from time to time. When you got an airplane tied down and get air under all three wheels, that's a lot of wind, folks. That's a lot of wind. Yeah. So it's crazy weather here in Florida. I think it's beautiful. I'm from New Hampshire, and this, I'll take it. You know, you're, than, you're sweating, right? Well, I'm sweating for other reasons altogether. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, other than being other being, being relocated here because the tent was, uh, it was uh, having troubles, um, well, I, I think this weather is just fine. It's nice no and sunny, complaints. and it feels good out in the sunlight, but 
All of you guys with hats know that a chin strap would have made things a little easier today. Yeah. On that note, welcome folks to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast coming to you from live on location from uh, the uh, Sebring. This airport is not called Sebring Airport, right? It's got the a US name. Sport it's Aviation Expo. The Sport Aviation Expo. The there's a, there's a sign out front of the terminal building that is called like the John Smith Airport or the who, who's from here? What's it called? Do you know? Nobody knows. Um, Anyways, we're down here, and uh, we've been enjoying the uh, Sport Flying Expo for the last few days, and uh, and the beautiful weather. It's beautiful. And that background noise you may hear from time to time is probably not an airplane in the pattern, but it's cars on the racetrack at the Sebring International Raceway where they're warming up for their 12-hour uh, well, race come March. Uh, well, Jeb's showing me the uh, louder than the airplanes in the pattern because the wind's blowing all the airplane noise down some another direction. It really is. The wind. The, the noise is blowing. We're downwind yeah. of the noise, and that's yeah, the you thing. You can hear the race cars. Yep, yep. Well, Jeb's showing me the airnav.com page for this airport, and it's just calling it Sebring Airport. But there's a sign out in front of the terminal Sebring building. Regional Airport. Sebring Regional, excuse me. As Sebring opposed Regional to, airport, you know, yeah. cheap fuel municipal or something. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. What's going on out in the world of, of aviation here? This is the infamous list, at least the tablet form of it. Um, there's, a, there's a new student pilot application process. Well, it's a security-related process, and I'm not real sure I understand it all. Yeah, we're um, going to leave it at that. Well, I'm, you know, Dave can chime in. David, do you know anything about this new student pilot application program process? Well, just to know, just enough to make me once again question uh, who comes up with this stuff at 800 Independence Avenue in D.C. So, uh, the. Uh, is it just more approvals or background checks? Or? Well, the, 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 new, the new process for becoming a student pilot, whether private or light sport, is to present yourself at a FISDO or to a CFI or a 141 flight school, fill out the paperwork, then they do the background check on you, then you get a piece of paper and if you, or a student pilot certificate, a plastic one, and then if you need a medical for what you're shooting for, then you go see the AME. Not go see the AME and come away with a paper That's student right. pilot certificate. So I'm impressed with how the FAA has once again found a way to increase the complexity of getting into aviation. And I'm sure that it's going to be a great help to recruiting new pilots. You, you say that with some sarcasm? Well, I'm sorry, we're audio only, or the people at home could have seen the eye roll that went with that. No. Yeah. It's my understanding that the FAA didn't have a whole lot of choice in this, based on, I'll say, I'll use the word input, from Department of Homeland Security, TSA, et cetera. One of the things that they've done is move the vetting process from the position it was in post-solo, for example, to um, um, before solo, before getting training. Uh, it's arguable as to whether that has any value. Uh, it's arguable whether or not that will scare some people away. It probably will. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't interfere with the potential for you to take dual while this is all going on. But if you've taken enough dual waiting for that plastic certificate to show up because you've been cleared by the security apparatchik, you can't solo until that card shows up. And if that's if you're light sport. 
if you're going for private, you can't solo until you get the medical, which adds another hitch to the get along. Right. So, right. I'm sure this made somebody happy, but well, back in I want to say '02, um, there was a big deal that the FAA and and I guess Secret Service back then uh, were going to I don't know run matches the run the the pilots, the, the, let me rephrase it, the, the airman certification database, run that against the no-fly list, run that against 10 Most Wanted, run that against, uh, I don't know, uh, um, uh, whatever they wanted to run it against. And supposedly they did, and you know the, the, the angels sang and, and uh, the sun shone the next morning, and we all went, uh, went about our business, but uh, now they're just, you know, they're just tinkering around the edges. Yeah. So. It's not going to do anything well, anything good for student stars, that's for sure. No, and I'm not sure it's really going to add anything to the uh, level of security that we have in place. It's just going to add another step in the process that's you, probably you, not really necessary, but you're, you're, of course they'll find that one person that'll prove me wrong and they can go, see, Higdon, you were wrong. We caught one. Right, Warm. but I'm not holding my breath because I don't look good blue like Papa Smurf. <laughs> now, in a in a not related related story, um, the uh, FAA apparently is going to is I don't exactly know whether this is a requirement or a recommendation about about cha- making some changes to the uh, flight review process. Um, apparently, to put more emphasis on uh, hand flying on uh, this kind of in my if I'm reading this properly. This plays into what we've been talking about for a couple of years now, where we've seen some airliners where these so-called highly rated, you know, high-time pilots not knowing basic or being weak on basic stick and rudder stuff. And and according to this, um, this is a story from Flying Magazine. This is Flying's website, actually. Um, FAA updates flight review criteria. Special emphasis is being placed on hand-flying skills and over-reliance on automation. Um, and, uh, I mean, if that's what it says on the face of it, that seems like a good idea to me. We've seen a handful of, uh, of tragic airline accidents over the years that at least had some fat part of it could be, was, was contributed to by poor, poor stick and rudder skills. That's true. Um, and so, you know, it, the look in your eyes is you're not familiar with this story. The look in my eye is, is... Yeah, not really familiar with it, but also, I don't think light GA is the problem. It's certainly not the problem they're trying to fix. Was it limited to light GA? I didn't see that. It could be. I don't know. I um, I, I sort of took it to be a broader um, requirement. Yeah, and and they're mixing their their problems here also. It says um, the AC uh, says the FA reminds CFI is conducting flight reviews and IPCs to ensure that a pilot under evaluation is proficient with the automated system and knows what to do if it fails. That's kind of preaching to the choir, and that's what the BFR and the, the IPC are all about anyway, is making sure the pilot is comfortable with the equipment in, in that airplane. Loss of control, um, which is another area of concern apparently cited by the AC, um, I, th- I think they're projecting Air France 447 um, like issues onto uh, light GA that maybe doesn't have that kind of problem. Well, if that's what they're doing, then I agree with you. That's that's yeah. not doesn't take me where I want to go because right. you know we've been talking for a couple of years now, not just us but others in the industry about the fact that 
amazingly, airline pilots, some, most are fine, but some are pretty weak on stick and rudder skills. Mm-hmm. Um, Loss of control seems to be on everybody's hit list for, yeah. what, three years now? Yeah. Uh, two, for sure. And it doesn't seem to be restricted to guys flying high-performance airplanes with sophisticated cockpit avionics. It seems to be an issue up and down the range. It, it does. It, it happens up and down the range. It happens with 121 operations just like it does 91 operations. Um, and size is, is no real predictor. Loss of control and, and stick basic stick and rudder skills are definitely something we should all be worried about and, and all be practiced at. Well, the um, FAA started talking about reemphasizing hand flying skills in the uh, twice annual recurrent training that 121 oper- or flyers mm-hmm. go through. Uh, now we're seeing it trickle down into the lower latitudes, if you will, for the same reason. Uh, too much flying behind an autopilot doesn't really give you the chance to exercise hand flying skills and if you've got an autopilot and a, and, and a navigation system that will basically fly the approach for you until you need to disconnect the flight management system or the autopilot doesn't really prepare you for some of the things that can go wrong particularly if the conditions aren't optimal and, and air traffic control sends you around or has you doing stuff off the approach the published approach, and you got to take your hands off and dial stuff into the FMS or the uh, 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 GPS. Suddenly, you're not quite prepared for what you're what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Wow, I've got to fly this by hand now. Uh, well, there's there's a lot a of idea. yeah, there's a lot of uh, things that have been said over the years. Don't let the auto- automation take you where you're not ready to go and. And you always want to stay five minutes ahead of the airplane and things like that. I'm, I'm just not sure that automation and um, letting the airplane fly you around is as much a problem in light GA as it is perhaps in, in 121 operations. Oh, I think you're right in terms of total population. Right. Uh, where we're seeing it, an issue in GA is with newer, higher performance aircraft that are very heavily equipped with cockpit displays and, and automation that lets those guys do it. Well, we, you know, The guys flying, you know, the 172 or the Cherokee that doesn't have an autopilot, obviously automation's not going to be a big deal for him. He's hand flying everything. There's a lot of people are talking about the, uh, the docket that the NTSB released just this last week on a... Um, Embraer Phenom 100 crash, fatal crash, Gaithersburg, uh, Maryland, back in 04, I'm sorry, 14. And um, it's, a, it's a little bit complicated because you've got a highly automated airplane. Um, and uh, you've got a, basically a stall spin situation while maneuvering for the runway. Um, the aircraft was at like 88 knots or something like that, um, when it should have been more like 108. Um, VREF was probably higher, but one of the things highlighted by the NTSB in their findings or in their factual uh, report so far was that the pilot neglected to put the airplane into anti-ice mode, which would have moved the VREF up to about 134. Yeah. And um, 
without having engaged that anti-ice mode and without um, changing the, the logic in the software of the airplane, uh, he basically flew it until he lost control. So is that an automation problem? Is that a loss of control problem? Is that a stick and rudder problem? I don't, I don't know. I think that's a pilot brain fart problem. Could be. Not to put too fine a point on it. Let me remind you guys that in addition to talking to our friends at home on their iPods, we're talking to the folks in the room and we are competing with the race cars. So uh, as we talk, let's make sure that the uh, nice gentleman in the blue jacket can hear us as well. Okay. Um, and uh, I think for the most part we're okay, but we're, we're getting a little conversational here and we need to speak up a little bit, I think. Well, so. we'll, we'll open it up for questions. We'll we? open, yeah, that, that worked real well the other day. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're at Sebring. Um, there's an air show going on, a fly-in going on here, and, uh, and there's some cool stuff here. I've uh, been wandering a around a little bit today and the other day, and uh, I'm wondering what you, fo you guys have seen that, that you liked here. What, what, what stood out? Jeb, why don't you start? Um, let me pull the brochure out. Commuter craft. Um, Co what is it now? Commuter craft. This, this kind of a quasi-delta wing, two-seater with a canard. Look at this. Here's something we don't usually get to do. See? I'm holding it up to the audience now. Um, um, it just looks kind of, it's a, it's a one-off design. It's, it, uh, it looks very sturdy. Um, it, the, the example they have out on the flight line. Is this line, a factory airplane or a kid? Or I a? can't tell you right, that right now. Uh, it, the one they have out on the flight line looks a little rough. Uh, it's, it's not been, the fiberglass needs to be finished and, okay. and things like that. I'm not sure if it's a mock-up or uh, if it actually flew here or, or what. Any of you folks familiar with this airplane? It's, it's got, got 20 hours. It's, got, it's been flying. 20 hours. Okay. It's the first one, yeah. It's yeah. the first one. It's the prototype. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Prototype or first kind of finished? First kind of finished. Okay. Okay. It looks very interesting. Um, it's very, yeah. it's not a delta wing, but it almost has that feel yeah. to it. It's a yeah. very triangular plan form here. But it's also got a, a, a lifting body kind of, kind of yeah, look right, to yeah, the right. fuselage. Yep, yep. Um, it's, so, it's very wide. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Oh, and I'm looking at the side view here. The tail, the uh, tail is raised. It's right. the, uh, up above. Well, the, it's, it's a pusher engine configuration. Oh, okay, so pusher the, yeah, prop, right, pusher engine. Yeah. Um, so it, it's got a tail like a, an OV10 Bronco. Uh-huh. If you can picture that, the twin booms going aft and the, the horizontal stabilizer above the, tw the right. twin ver uh, vertical stabs. But um, it, that, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. David, what have you seen that you liked? Well, some more familiar faces here that uh, are some of the main lines. Talk to the guy in blue, David. Talk to the guy in blue. But the stuff that I've been shopping mostly is uh, propellers and avionics for my project. Uh, yeah, now see, now these I folks. I drawn to the, the commuter air, uh, the commuter craft designed by the uh, reports of how big the cockpit was. They say 60-inch wide cockpit, but then when you look inside of it, there's a console in there in between that's got to be 12, 18 inches wide. So it's not like it's got spread out room to the degree that it sounds when you meet, read the cockpit measurement. The nice roomy airplane. But uh, looking at some of the avionic systems here, uh, the uh, propeller options, uh, and uh, mostly visiting with uh, a lot of old friends and making a few new ones, like yeah. some of the folks in the audience here today. Exactly, so, uh, exactly. Now, the folks listening at home, 
have our friends here in the room at a disadvantage because the folks listening at home, well, that's not exactly true. The episode that we recorded a couple of days ago, David announced something that's been brewing but hasn't been talking about, um, and that is your project that you alluded to there. Just give us the short version and then listen to the other episode and you'll get all the details, but go ahead. Right, well, a, uh, about not quite three weeks ago, a nice big trailer stopped in Wichita at, uh, at a location near my home and dropped off a quick build Sonex YX kit. So in my building space, which is a little less than two miles from the house, I have a complete YX fuselage with a canopy already installed, two finished wings that have been uh, mounted, fitted, uh, adjusted, and final drilled into the fuselage and then removed for the trip to Wichita, and eight cardboard boxes, which I have not yet started unpacking. We're all going to go out there next month and sit in it and go, vroom, vroom. Oh, <laughs> you, you, if you wait till next month, you'll be behind me. Uh, <laughs> I'd have done it already, but I'm not sure the sawhorse's weight capacity, so I'm going to get a couple of more under the fuselage before I do that. But the uh, fun part for me was taking a look at this after the truck driver left and realizing that the fit and finish of the work that was done by the Sonex factory in Oshkosh is way, way ahead of what I've expected out of myself. So uh, really pretty work, uh, ready to start building control surfaces and the, uh, the empennage parts. And uh, after that, fitting the control architecture, doing the wiring and moving to the firewall forward part, at which point we'll uh, have them ship the engine kit to me and we'll go from there. But I have no, no target date for yeah, flying okay. it yet. No, I understand so. that. But so getting back to Sebring, um, you saw some things here related to your project that are, are interesting. Yeah, I've been shopping for avionics, been looking at the two people, uh, the two companies that seem to supply the props to most of the Sonics airplanes out there, uh, Cincinnati and uh, Prince. Uh, both make nice products, haven't made any decisions yet. But... Uh, Next thing is uh, lining up a paint shop in Wichita uh, because I want to get it that It arrived lined on up. a truck three three weeks ago, and you're already planning to paint it. Well, a friend of mine is going to be doing the design for me. I, I would imagine if it's the friend I, I'm thinking of, sure, yeah, right, yeah, so drawings to work with. Oh, I see. Well, so oh, so he needs to coordinate with the paint shop this early in the in the game. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not too early to start thinking about paint the day you receive your kit. Is what you're saying. Yeah, that's the idea. Is, yeah. uh, get the uh, drawings off to uh, our friend at Scheme Designers, Craig Marnett. Right. Work with him on a design that I'm hoping will be uh, distinctive enough to uh, make the airplane stand out for the rest of my life. Because mm -hmm. this is probably going to be, if not the last airplane project I do, the second to last airplane project. Right. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I'm gonna. We're gonna pause here for just a second. Okay. Um, does anybody um, tell them the Ponca City story? Well, I do that. I'm gonna do here. Ponca City story. You really want to bar the door, and uh, if you're ever in the neighborhood, first Saturday of the month, Ponca City. It's the best breakfast for the money you'll ever buy. And they very graciously have not actually told the story yet. No, we haven't yet. So I, I have nightmares to this day. No, that's not exactly true. Um, is that we had that we had. So we do the podcast in a particular way technically every every time. It's a very 
proven setup that we use, and it's very I've found it to be very reliable, and so we don't worry that much. But when we come out here in the field like this, we have to kind of cobble together a, a setup that's different than what we're used to. And in Ponca City, we had a setup that was different than what we're used to, and it was only after we were completely done that we realized that all of the microphones and mixers and everything that we had set up were the 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 software on my computer had decided that it wasn't going to record the microphones in the mixer it was going to record the little microphone built into the laptop instead all right and as a result although you can hear us you can't really hear us all right you can and hear us but it sounds like we're we're going to have to, one of these days we just pay somebody to listen to that and do a transcript. Well, oh yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Jack's so, developed a, a bit of useful paranoia. Yeah. So, and my paranoia here, although I can, and I, you can't see this, but I actually am seeing that the microphones are working and it's being recorded properly. But my paranoia today is that something will crash and all of it will be lost. All right. And so what I just did while they were chatting was I saved the first half. That, so That's not telling you that it's being recorded. That's just giving you the information on the signal it's seeing. Well, it may or may not be recording no, this. Well, okay. You know, thanks. I appreciate the confidence that you're showing me right there. That's great. That's great. Just just clarification. Yeah, right. David, Sebring, um, you spent a lot of time talking to the guy over there about that, what, BD-17 airplane? Right. What did you find interesting about that BD-17? Well, first, that there's a, a, a another BD kit uh, coming on the market. This is the uh, a, a product of, of Jim Beatty. The who's design recently is a passed away. Of Jim Beatty. The existence of the uh, aircraft is a product of Jim, the late Jim Beatty's right. son. Right. Who's Jim Beatty, the, the legendary now. aircraft designer, somewhat of a of a character. A, a, a little bit of a gadfly, but he uh, he gave us airplanes like the uh, the uh, little uh, Grumman's. Those yeah. are Beatty designs. Uh, Quite a number of kit designs over the years, including a kit jet. James Bond through the The BD-5 jet. Yeah. Uh, B, well, the BD-5. And uh, this one has all the characteristics of a Jim BD design. Uh, the uh, the uh, honeycomb sandwich construction and the fuselage, uh, tubular spars, bonded wings. Uh, this one was uh, powered by the uh, HKS 700 uh, engine, which is a... Horizontally opposed twin that makes 60 horsepower, uh, multiple valves per cylinder, uh, actually a fairly high-tech little motor out of Japan, uh, and I think a really ideal match for that airframe as opposed to one of the two-cylinder, two two-stroke engines that might be available. Uh, the one they had here had enough fuel for about eight hours, so they say the next one's going to have less fuel on it which uh -huh. will improve the cabin payload full fuel yeah uh it looked good it looked fun they're claiming 125 mile an hour uh speed at cruise setting at altitude and on 60 horsepower anytime you can get two miles an hour per horsepower it's not a bad right, thing right now was that a kit or a factory plane or a I think it's a kit at the moment, but they're still in the uh development process okay. and uh they're shooting for uh the LSA market, and they're planning a two-place version of this. This was a single-place airplane, one of two single-place airplanes that were out there together. I wanted to go to that one next. Yeah, there was that that kind of cute little yellow or, or you know right. goldenrod kind of colored airplane. It's still over there now. This the BD-17 was missing when I was there earlier yeah. today, but the uh, little goldenrod one is still there. Well, and and both of them were boasting under fifty thousand 
uh, equipped for finished price. Yeah, well so. under fifty thousand. Uh, the yellow one uh, was was claiming thirty five thousand for everything, including the engine, as a kit. It was a so you had to build it. All right, but. Uh, um, and it was a cute little airplane. I kind of like, look kind of interesting. One one place, so you don't get to take your friends flying. But uh, um, it was kind of interesting. I thought. Well, it's and, good to see that kind of innovation at that end, and 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 some variety because a single place will have some appeal to a, a lot of people. Uh-huh. If for no other reason, for the affordability of it. Right. Uh, two place is still going to be the dominant because. After a while, going everywhere by yourself loses some of its appeal. You may want to take the wife, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the sister, the brother, the kid for a ride. Uh, but there's a lot of folks that will be uh, fat and dumb and happy with a single uh, that can go 120-plus miles an hour yep. Yep. and go far enough to make it a uh, change of weather for you. Yeah, exactly right. Um, Which we in this case would mean going north. Going north, yeah. You really don't want to. Ch- well, you want to change the weather, you know, the wind weather, but you don't want to change the sunshine weather. This is nice down here. Um, we wandered around. We were chatting with our friends over at AOPA and EAA. We were talking to Jamie and uh, and those guys at uh, at uh, at AOPA, and they're con- continuing to to fight the good fight, and and uh, they've got this. Uh, what do they call it? The communities program. That basically, I think of it as being the, the their ongoing f- promoting flying clubs initiative that, that continues to, to move forward. And uh, they were telling me that they signed up a, a, a decent number, not a huge number, but a decent number of, uh, they saw a decent number of new flying clubs formed around the country last year. And that's kind of nice. Um, we were talking with our, our good pal, uh, Charlie Becker, over at, uh, over at EAA, and, uh, you know, and he's doing his thing with community and chapters and, and whatnot, and, uh, and uh, he Charlie. lit up when he heard you were finally had bitten the bullet and you were going to build an airplane. And uh, Charlie logs a lot of miles going out and representing EAA at yep. chapter events and uh, developmental events, and uh, uh, he spent a lot of time helping flog the one-week wonder around the country. It's not here this time. But, yeah, I know. I noticed that. Uh, they uh, they still haven't painted it by the way they still I, I asked Charlie this in a session that I was in with him you can't the other paint day. that airplane what's that you cannot paint that airplane well and I think they're not going to paint the airplane but they are going to coat it somehow they're going to like put some right to preserve all those yeah. signatures um, all if, those. for those who don't know the the one week wonder was the uh, was the uh, aircraft that they that we all built two summers ago at uh, at Oshkosh. And and they actually they had all kinds of plans to paint it, um, and uh, and they actually had a competition. They had three different designs that we all voted on, and and the and the best one, which is say the one I picked, um, got selected theoretically to be the paint job. Um, the problem was not a problem exactly, but the the the, the thing was the, that the, the catch the catch was that um, as we were all putting in our rivets on the airplane. Almost all of us were given an opportunity to sign our name on the aluminum right next to our rivet. All right, um, and and it ended up it's kind of cool the airplane with all these signatures on it. And so they suddenly said, well, what are we going to do? Are we really going to paint over all these signatures? We don't want to do that. And so they've spent the last year and a half or so trying to figure out exactly how to both protect the airplane but also protect all the signatures. And uh, they apparently have not officially decided how to do this, but they they've been talking about things where they. You know, maybe maybe clear coat it instead of painting it with colors or something like that. And uh, I believe Craig, um, who designed all those designs as well, um, is involved in the process of trying to figure out how to 
come up with a, a really unique paint. Yeah, scheme. you can't even polish out and make the aluminum shiny and, right, and still leave right. all those signatures. Right. And so, uh, folks, you know how many rivets get pulled in an airplane like that. Yeah. That's thousands of signatures, and all those folks signed the builder's log too. So. Yep. Uh, yep, we're all there. Looking at the builder's log doesn't quite have the same impact as looking at the airplane with all these individual signatures. They're by not, all these they're not going to carry the builder's rivets. log around with them everywhere they go. So, <laughs> what else? I saw a Globe Swift. This is really not a show plane, but it was it was visiting here. It, it was I think it must have been for sale because they were they pulled it out they rolled it out from the for sale area there over on the ramp, um, and and I saw it being pushed out and I just I, I have a very really you know, warm place in my heart for the Globe Swift. It was, in my early days of flying, it was high on my list of the, of my kind of dream list of airplanes that I wanted to own and fly. Um, and uh, so I just stood there by the fence and, and watched and waited while it, it uh, powered up and did its, you know, pre-flights and then taxied out and took off. And it was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I understand, David, you have a, a warm spot for Globe Swifts as well. They were one of those airplanes that, uh, in my youth, I looked at with uh, with uh, some, you know, in need of a bib because it always made me drool. Looked like a little fighter plane, and that was the whole idea coming out of the uh, uh, World War II era was to give all those ex-military pilots an affordable little airplane that had some of the same handling characteristics and appearance as what they'd flown during the war. Uh, it never quite came to be and when I finally got around to having to buy an airplane because practicalities like how much I could carry and how far I go it could go. Yeah, it's, got it's, in the way. it's only a two-seat aircraft to begin with. Yeah, it wound up with something far less sexy, yeah. uh, Cherokee 140. Now, now, most people are familiar with um, Globe Swifts in the form of the highly modified uh, Swift Fury that was... Um, what was the name of the outfit that creates Lopresti the... Lopresti was... Lopresti, thank Lopresti you. Lopresti was Speed trying to bring it back. And uh, the, the bright yellow one that said whoopee on the underside of the wings, all right? And uh, that was a pretty cool-looking airplane. And uh, um, somebody, was it James? or did you, you didn't get you to fly that airplane, did you? You did? No. no I think... I, James, James, I think James, James or someone we know got a chance to actually fly in that airplane. And that's just like... That's, that's yeah, jealousy right there. Our good friend James Winbrandt, the writer, musician, and yeah. the creator of the... Wag Your Wings music that's inspired a t-shirt by EAA. Yeah, there is a, uh, there's a Rock Your Wings t-shirt now. Rock Your Wings. Put, put out by EAA now. Speaking of t-shirts, well, funny you should mention t-shirts. So we, we, we just want to, we're trying to let people know that uh, we have created a uh, UCAP store. For years now, people have been asking us for shirts that say uncontrolled airspace on them or whatnot. This is a shameless self-proportion. And, and so we've gone ahead and done this. Part of the and program. you know what? You don't have to buy one if you don't want to, but they're there if you want That's to. Right. And they're more than just shirts with the UCAP logo on them. Je- Jeb, you're responsible for this. So we- there are some sayings that you might hear repeatedly if you listen to this podcast. Um... um Flying, what time span flying is not subtracted from your lifespan being one of them. Well, now you can buy a t shirt that says that. So there. And is there one? Unfortunately, one says, uh, time wearing that t shirt will still be subtracted from your lifespan, <laughs> but it can at least make you feel good about it. Is there one that says, uh, I think there's one that says uh, uh, reaching the end of our allotted time or something like something that? Something like that. Yeah. There's another one that's, you know, not even Dave would fly that. Not even Dave. That's, yeah. So if you're at all, if you're at all interested, you can go to uncontrolledairspace.com slash store. And you'll get some information. There's even a shirt with Jack Smoke's frequent phrase, which is, 
We're coming to the end of our allotted right. time. Yeah, right. there you go. So uh, take a look at that. There's also, I think, some mugs there, and uh, I forget what caps else. and caps yeah. and and things yeah. like that. So just typical swag. There stuff. we go. Because we need more gas money. Because I guess. It, yeah. it's yeah. early enough that if you order now, you'd have it to wear at Sun and Fun. Yeah. Um, another thing I saw here, um, and and this is I think really not related to the show. I don't think. Maybe it is. Um, Amazingly, in the last five days, I have seen three different Eclipse jets. And, and I don't know whether that's just an aberration or is that a function of Florida. I'm, I am cool. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, je- <laughs> sorry. See, now, no, I'm I'm ta- just- now I'm taking advantage of the fact that there are people here and I'm talking to the folks who are here not realizing that everybody at home is, uh, you know, we should just, we should all show a bunch of videos and the bunch of us here will all just have a good time right. watching right. videos and talking about them, but letting the people at home have no Some, idea what we're Someone call and get about, some pizza right? and beer. Yeah, okay, and that's what we should yeah, do. Yeah. Eclipse jets. So we went over, we flew over to Tampa to pick up Dave uh, a few days back. And as we were taxiing out, um, an Eclipse jet landed on the runway right in front of us. That's one. All right. Then there was a red one here on Thursday. On Thursday. You you know that. You saw that one. All right. Really pretty paint job. It was, you know. And so it was here. I don't don't quite understand why it was here because they were were trying to park it in the exhibit area. The the, the separation between VLJ and LSA is only a couple of letters. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. They're really very much the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. The light shows up in both of them. There you go. and I saw that one flying later in the day. And then uh, Jeb and I were by the terminal building this morning or earlier this afternoon. And Jeb suddenly says, look, out there on the ramp. And he points way down the end. And he, says, you, he says, what's that? And that's an Eclipse jet, too. So a third Eclipse jet in five days. I mean, no joke. That probably doubles the number of Eclipse jets I've seen in the wild forever. Right? Is that just an aberration or is something changing? Or do you, do you see them here in Florida all the time? I will say I see them all the time in Florida, but I do see them. Uh, and hear them on the frequency and, and, and like that. Um, I, I, it's probably an aberration for me also to see so many Eclipse jets in one week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, similar kind of airplane, Cirrus is is maybe getting ready to uh, alt start shipping the Cirrus jet. Cirrus jet may be among us very soon. The, uh, the company is saying second quarter, second calendar quarter of yeah. 16. And I had occasion in the last few weeks to speak with uh, someone who's been working on their training program and the POH and all that kind of thing. And he says, yeah, they're pretty much finished with it. They're about to get their, uh, really? their type certificate. So. That will be Big deal. a milestone yeah. in jet aviation because there have been dreams and schemes of single-engine jets going back. Gee, Gulfstream was looking at one they called a Peregrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beach was looking at a uh, spinoff from the uh, Starship right. that was going to be a mm-hmm. single-engine jet, and it's never happened. Diamond's got one that they prototyped. Mm-hmm. There have been two or three others. If Cirrus actually pulls this off and delivers airplanes and keeps serial production going, that will be the milestone first Single engine jet certificated and put yeah, in. No, that would be very cool. But just the VLJ. So, and this, as you say, this goes way back. One of the very earliest episodes of this podcast, going back almost ten years now, had in, had its title was sort of based on VLJs. Swell prize to anybody who knows what the, which one that was. Um, but uh, my point being that 
the, the BLJ has been kind of a dream, a promise. Uh, I mean, and there was a time when we thought it, we, we were within a year or two of it, and then of course it kind of crashed, and well, the, 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 the marketplace jet. crashed. Yeah, and, we, uh, we've we've realized VLJs for a number of years, but the Cirrus jet is something that. Uh, well, um, but but I'm ta- you know the eclipse, the fact that we've seen eclipses and it it kind of came back from from you know the the dark side or however no, you want to, the phenomenon one hundred is is, is the Cessna Mustang. It's close. Uh, it's a little yeah. heavier. Yeah, those. Well, it depends on where you where you draw the line, but they're they're all considered VLJs by uh, others. <laughs> cool. Oh, we're back. Power just went out for a second here. That's been happening all day long. That's one of the reasons. Oh no! Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on. Oh, well, no, we see we are dependent on power because the, although my laptop is will run on batteries, the mixer is on power. So I don't know what just happened. I actually see I see a little a blank spot in the recording there. So I don't know what might happen there. Um, but we seem to be recording once. Oh wait! Oh, something weird's going on here. Turn it on. The uh, Jeb's right about the Phenom 100 and the Citation Mustang kind of comes into the same territory, but both of the plane makers in those particular models cases kind of wanted to distance themselves from the term very light jet. And considering the failure rate of all the other companies except Eclipse, which failed and had to come back as in a new form before it got there, it's not hard to understand that, but we actually have three certificated jets under 10,000 pounds, and the Eclipse is down around six. And the uh, Cirrus jet would make a fourth in that weight range, but the only single. All the others are twins. So yeah. We'll, yeah. we may see this landmark yet. I, 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 I'll exhale when I actually see the first one being flown in private hands. This yeah. summer, apparently, yeah. Q2 is what they're saying. I don't know. But then they were saying Q1, and it was announced that it was delayed. But then the question is, will Diamond bring theirs out of hiatus and put it back on track? Yeah. Well, I mean, if they can sell some some of these uh, 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 Cirruses and others, maybe they will. Maybe they will. We seem to be recording again. We actually did lose. So you guys, are you, you have the privilege of having heard some part of this episode that no one else will hear. All right? <laughs> right. So, that much. Uh, it seems to be recording again. That something weird happened there when the power went out and the mixer blipped. And it's, uh, um, what are you guys up to? Is there something you'd like to tell us about from the show, or a question that you've always wanted to ask, or I don't know what? And uh, yeah, you've got the longest mic cord. That might be the way what, to do it, David. What have you all seen at the show that you thought was interesting that we did not? Anybody got something special that you want to like about the show? You? They saw or they yeah. wanted to see. Tell us your first name and what what name of your airport is. Don't pull is. too hard on that, Dave. Uh, my name is Mark, and uh, I fly out of Venice here in Florida. And you're here with? I'm here with my daughter Leah. There you go. And uh, we actually came over here to uh, to see this to uh, to see the, the recording of the podcast. We've been we've been avid listeners well, for years, and uh, I'm sure you in general have very good taste. You <laughs> yeah. So you're the one ticket we sold. Very one ticket. Thank you. Um, what are, have you seen? Anything else? I mean, so you, but you've been here. You've seen some things. I have. I uh, was looking at the Bush Cat, uh, and I, I I really like I really liked uh, like that. Say again. What was it now? The Bush Bush Cat. Oh, the Bush Cat. Yeah. yeah. The. Uh, I'm not sure if I know what that is actually. It was it was kind of kind of in the back. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a uh, t- twin seat. Uh, uh, big tires. Big tires. Very big tires. 
kind of looks like uh, like something you'd fly in Alaska, like okay. tundra tundra yep. build. Looks kind of kind of tough. Uh, multicolored green over black. And it's a little different what you fly on your day job. Yes, it is a little different than I fly on my day job. Yeah. Uh, I am a, a tactical flight officer for uh, a local law enforcement agency. And fly helicopters. You're the gentleman who told us that we don't need to notify the authorities. No, because we, 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 yeah. We, yeah. we always know when you come into town. He is, he is the authority. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you for stopping by, and we appreciate it. Good to see you again. And, and your daughter, Leah, is one of the most patient people I've met in a long time. She's been freezing, and she's hung in. Anybody else? Over there someplace? You're right, David? Who's going to? And, and you're going to have to stand up and come in closer. And uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, I'm, I'm Dick from Punta Gorda. And I am the uh, official UCAP stalker. And I am really glad I was able to <laughs> finally stalk you guys back down. Good to see you again. We met before, though, right? We've, we, we were have here at Sebring and up at Sun and Fun. Yep, yep. Yeah. Some local guy. Good to see you again. What's going on? Uh, I, I, I kind of, my flying is from Civil Air Patrol. So I'd like to vol volunteer our organization at Punta Gorda. Uh, we've got, I think, the uh, head of the uh, police department helicopter group. We've got about four police helicopters down at Punta Gorda, and the chief pilot there has a daughter that's in uh, Civil Air Patrol. And uh, so it's a great organization. We do a lot of good things and fun flying. And, uh, but no, I really enjoy listening to your your oh, thank uh, you. podcast and been doing it since about the first episode, oh, okay. which is a long, long, long. So, do you time know which ago. episode had the VLJ reference in the title? No, no I okay, don't remember right, which okay, one. All right, just leave <laughs> it Too out many there. to have them all. Memorized. Swell prize, you know, and uh, let us know. Let us know. Thanks. Anybody else? Jim. What was your name the, again? One of the bad from? boys of uncontrolled Ooh. airspace. Howdy. Jim G. It's Jim, Jim G. from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, I, a couple people I saw and a couple things I saw, and these may turn into shout-outs, but we'll see how this goes. Good to see all you guys here uh, in person, as always, uh, which we only see you a few times a year. Um, I went to a uh, seminar this morning by noted aviation writer Mike Bush, who's uh, sometimes called the savvy mechanic or savvy the aviator. Savvy avi avi aviator. aviator. And uh, it was really amazing to have that kind of expertise in one package in a room with about 20 people um, for real close one-on-one uh, -on -one answers. When you see him at Oshkosh, he's addressing a room of 300. So that was really great. Uh, he was talking about uh, your first flight after maintenance, and I think that's something sometimes people don't give a lot of thought to. Um, also, I wanted to note that I saw my friends uh, Larry and Amy Mednick out here. They design, build, and sell weight shift control delta wing trikes here in Florida in Zephyr Hills. And uh, if you ever go to Sun and Fun or, or Oshkosh, you'll see them out there selling. And they deserve a big shout out because they're having the, the wind and rain have kept a few people away from the show and they packed up all their gear and dragged it all out here and sat out here on the ramp. And uh, so uh, it was good to see them and wish they had more customers. <laughs> um, and as far as the, what was it, the V? I like that acronym, um, Very Light Jet Sport Aircraft. That's what I'm going to call my. LSA from now on. VLJSA? Yeah, a very light special jet aircraft. There we go. 
Okay. <laughs> good, to, so. good to see uh, you guys. Thank, good to see you too, Jim. Um, Mike Bush um, is is everything you said and, and more. Um, he is a uh, he was a, and he was a guest on Uncontrolled Airspace way back when. Um, very very interesting series of episodes that we and the other um, aviation podcasters did back in. I actually looked this up um, in February of 2008. All right, um, uh, Tupper and some of the others, and, every, and we all kind of coordinated, and we each covered a different aspect of buying an airplane. All right, um, and we had Mike Bush on uncontrolled airspace, and he spoke about the whole process of pre-purchase inspections, um, and uh, it was it was a, a really quite fascinating um, information that he gave us on on these steps and and what you should do in this regard. Many of you may know I've worked with Mike a lot over the years, and um, always um, always enjoyed it. Um, Mike's always pretty much the smartest guy in the room. And when he applies himself to things aviation, it's something that all of us should pay attention to. As I understand it, the, his organization, the Savvy, this, the Savvy Aviator, um, is all about both consulting airplane owners, consulting with airplane owners to help them with their maintenance, but also actually managing the maintenance. Of, so you can sign a contract with his firm, and they will take care of all of the, you know, whatever. And if you have troubles, you just get on the phone and call them and say, I've got a problem with my airplane, and they'll make sure that, you know, whatever needs to happen to get your airplane flying again happens. Um, I, one of the things I find fascinating, and I'm sure this is just a tiny fraction of what they do, but I, he was, we were at Oshkosh last year or recently, and he was telling us about this program now where um, all these electronic gadgets in airplanes, these performance monitoring um, devices, are recording all this, all this engine um, data, all this engine performance data. And what they've discovered is, they, and apparently this is a Savvy Aviator exclusive, that they figured out how to take this data and they, they process it and analyze it, and they've discovered various leading clues to engine failures. So there are things that they see in like cylinder temperatures and you know things like that that are signs that a cylinder is about to fail or or something like that. Um, and apparently they've had very very good luck with uh, with you know maybe not quite predicting failures, but 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 you know seeing them much further in advance than than you might otherwise, and and diagnosing them and figuring out what was the problem and and where, it's very very interesting. He's written about it um, in a number of different publications over the over the last few years. There's and, there's uh, a huge quantity of data out there um, from operators, and Mike a few years ago set up a, a site that, um, for all intents and purposes, takes a a data file from an engine monitor, whether it's a G1000 or um, uh, a GM or a JPI or whatever. The data is pretty much standard format these days. And uh, analyzing it, looking at the various temperatures and temperature changes and the frequencies of the temperature changes and things like that. And then comparing that data, let's say down the road that same engine had an issue. So if you, and we know what the issue is on the airplane by now, on the engine by now. So if you go back, and you start looking at this data and analyzing it uh, with a very critical eye, you can almost pick out the points in the data where the problem started to, to become acute. Uh, and I, you know, I'm putting words in, in Mike's mouth, and I shouldn't do that, but uh, uh, it's, it's a very um, uh, empirical exercise on his part. And his training is as a mathematician, so he's he kind of sort of knows what he's doing when he when he analyzes data like this. Um, I don't know if they've gotten to the point of saying 
of actually being able to reliably predict things, but they were certainly headed in that direction. Yeah, so, well, I think we are reaching the end of our allotted time here, so uh, we're going to kind of wrap this thing up. Here's um, that praise again. A, a big thanks to uh, to you folks for coming out. We really appreciate your, especially your patience with well, the, and, and with the to, delay. And to the uh, Expo's management. Absolutely. Big thanks to, uh, to Jaina and Expo Management, and especially our friend Mary Jones, who's sitting back here, um, who is uh, an Keep old... Keeping an eye on us. Yeah, right. Making yeah. sure we stay... That's you know, right. As uh, well, somebody should. A dear old uh, EA friend, and now involved here with Sebring... And and uh, with, the, with the U.S. Sport Aviation Expo, excuse me, and uh, we thank you to all of all of you fo folks for your hospitality here. And uh, um, uh, later on, I'm not going to try. Usually, I read that whole thing. Thanks to Jeff Ward. Thanks to you know, but I can no way can I do that well, out of my we, head. We want to say thanks to Jenna Phillip and, and uh, yep. the folks here at Sebring that organize this stuff and uh, that were nice enough to uh, welcome us in again, despite knowing what they were getting into. Absolutely uh, right. Absolutely and right. And to the weatherman for accurately telling us what it was going to be right. like today, and we ignored it anyhow. That's right. Uh, so uh, let's see now. Um, real quickly, uh, uh, what are you guys working on? Anything fun? What are you doing? I've been kind of entertaining house guests here yeah, the last that's right. few days. Yeah, it's the, uh, the, uh, the, the Hidden River Home for Wayward Aviators is, is open for business this last few weeks, and uh, we've been enjoying that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, Jeb, was there something you wanted yeah, to say? Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten to mention my airplane goes in the avionics shop next week. Oh, that's right. We get all kinds of little new toys and stuff yeah. installed. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, yeah. You'll have to tell us all about that after you get it back. Let's, let's, well, I get, mean, let's get it back. What's the highlight of what you're expecting to do to it? Uh, WASH GPS and ADSB. Uh huh. Are you going to get, is this 2020 approved G, uh, ADSB? You're, you're, you're making biting, the move. Biting the bullet. Yeah, really. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would definitely want to hear more about that. And. Uh, very cool. Very cool. All right, then. Well, I guess that's it. David, was there something you were going to tell us? You want to get to be as old as some of us here? Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. So long. Members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.